Tonight will be the fifth in the series of messages on the subject of infant salvation. For various reasons, which we have given previously in other messages in this series, we are attempting in this study to answer the question as to what happens to an infant which dies in its stage of infancy. We have thus far observed that it's the general consensus of mankind at large, Christendom, godly individuals in the church, and the leading systems of Christian theology, that infants are savable creatures. But there are several different theories given to explain how this salvation actually occurs. I have stated that I, in my view, hold that all infants dying in infancy are saved and glorified in the presence of God. We have also, though, stated that any theory of infant salvation which is presented must be consistent with and not opposed to God's revelation of sin and the gospel remedy as given in the Scriptures. That is, we cannot devise a theory of infant salvation which does not take into the consideration the sinfulness of all human beings and God's remedy for sin in the gospel. If we do so, we shall step outside the dimensions of the Christian faith, and then we can come up with any type of ideas which we are at liberty to do so. We have completed the examination of the first of these theories, which has been known as the sinless theory. We concluded that this theory of infant sinlessness must be rejected as false, in that it is disproved by both natural and biblical revelation, and that it departs from God's revelation concerning man's sin and the gospel plan of redemption. The scriptures are clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This includes infants as well as adults. And we gave several proofs of this from the Bible. The one that stands out the most is that the wages of sin is death. Death would not have entered into the human race had sin not entered the race. Infants die. Therefore, in some way, infants are sinners before God. So we cannot then base our hope of the salvation of an infant upon the supposed sinlessness and innocency of that infant. For it is born with a nature which is sinful, which it has received from Adam. Now tonight we come to examine the second of these theories of infant salvation, which is known as the incapable theory, the incompetent or incapable theory. The major premise of this theory works along this fashion. As with the sinless theory, this view also rests its case in the character of the child. It looks within the nature of the child to find a reason for its savability. This view holds that human sinfulness 
is attachable only to the specific acts which a person does. That is, that sin is only that which a person does. Sin is not to be defined by this view as something that a person is in their nature, but a person cannot be a sinner unless it is attached to specific acts, which they do. The view then reasons that since an infant is morally incompetent to discern good and evil or to act, it cannot be held accountable for its actions. In essence, then, the child is savable because it's not condemnable, and it is not condemnable because it is incapable of moral actions. So do you see how this view presents its presentation? It says that only what is sinful is that which a person does in their acts. A child cannot act more in a morally competent fashion, therefore it cannot be condemned. And hence, on the basis that it cannot be condemned for its actions, then it must be rendered savable. Is this the best presentation that the Christian faith can give for the salvation of an infant? Well, I think not. But I do, before we want to examine the fallacy of this view, I do want to expand it a little bit further so that we might fully understand how the advocates of this view present their presentation. This view rests upon two arguments or lines of arguments. We will present both of them tonight, then examine one, and then in next week's message we will examine the second line of argument that presents this disposition. The first argument which is presented in the incapable theory of the salvation of an infant is this. All human life in this world is in a probationary state. Now, what do we mean by probation? We speak of criminals being out on what? Probation. It means that they are in a state of testing to see how their conduct is going to be carried out. Then, if it's satisfactory, they may be set free. If it's unsatisfactory, then they're put back into prison. The view of infant salvation based upon their incapability holds that all human life is in a probationary state. Probation is defined by the advocates of this theory as the moral trial of a free spirit or person which continues for a period of time under conditions appointed by God and then consummating in the confirmation of a permanent and unchangeable state. That is, man is given a chance, he's on probation, and then as he goes through that probationary state, he will pass out of that state into an unchangeable state, and his destiny will be dependent upon what he does in this present lifetime in which he is here on probation. We are told by the teachers of this theory that God tests men, the devil tempts men, 
but men create their own characters and determine their own final destiny. Not what happened in the Garden of Eden, not what happens at a person's physical birth, but at the point when a child becomes morally accountable to God, at that point, the human probationary period begins. And then, depending upon what happens in that probationary state, will be the outcome of that person's destiny. For example, the advocates of this view present the probationary period of life to begin like this. It begins with a human choice, followed by an act, followed by a habit, which produces a character and then that character is given a destiny. Say it in this light. Choices of the human will put forth result in acts. Acts, often repeated, fix habits. And habits, long continued in, produce character. And character then, when it is settled and determined, will then receive a destiny. So do you see the logic in which that this view presents? One's destiny is based on their character. Their character is formed by their habits. Their habits are influenced by their acts, and their acts are rooted in their free choices. So the probationary period then, according to this view, begins or did not take place in Eden. It does not begin at human birth. But it begins at that period when the child passes from infant immaturity into adult maturity and chooses to act. When it makes that choice, then the probation begins. And then it reasons that since if a child should die before that probationary act or choice is rendered, then the child could not act. And since sin is attachable only to an action, then the child would die having committed no acts of sin. Then it is reasoned that God then cannot justly condemn the child since it committed no sinful acts. Therefore, he must then receive it into heaven. So the first major premise is that all human life is probationary. Now, the second line of argument that this view presents is this. Human ability is the measure of human duty or obligation. That is, what a person is able to do, then that makes him responsible to do. The advocates of this view presented it in this light. If I can, I ought. If I cannot, I ought not. So that if a person then cannot be held accountable for being unable to do something, since an infant is unable to perform competent acts, then it is held that they cannot be held accountable for the performing of the, those acts. Now, is this reasoning sound? Again, I ask, has Christian theology done its very best? to lay a foundation for infant salvation when it grounds the doctrine of that infant salvation upon the premise of its incapability. 
If a child should enter into the gates of heaven, and God asked the question, My creature, what right have you to enter into my heaven? According to the first theory that we examine, the baby would say, I was born with a sinless nature, therefore I have right to enter into your heaven. According to the view which we are going to examine tonight, if God should ask that same child that same question, what right do you, my creature, have to enter into my heaven, then the child could reply, I was born, lived, and died before I ever chose to commit one act of sin. Therefore, I did not have a chance on my probationary trial. Thus, because I never sinned, then I have right to enter into your heaven. Now, obviously, then, if this is the truth of the Christian faith, neither one of these children needed a Savior. Both of these children went to heaven without having Jesus do anything for them. And I believe that because of that, that is not the sound Christian basis for grounding the salvation of any child. The historical and theological background for the theory of incapability also finds its roots in that which we examined as the Pelagian view of human nature. And while this view places a different emphasis, it is quite similar to the sinless theory which we have just uh, examined. Now, I would like to spend the remainder of the message this evening in examining the fallacies of this theory. Well, remember, one of the reasons that we chose to bring this series is to bring some comfort to some grieving parents who have had a child which died. Now, is it my role to go to that parent and tell them that their child was saved because it was sinless? Is it my role to go to that parent and say that their child was saved because it was incapable of sin? Or must I stay within the framework of the pages of the Bible? And if I do so, I think that I can give them a far more ground of hope and assurance than that theory which we have just presented to you. So I want to try to then proceed to show that the theory of incapability is false. On this first premise, now listen carefully. Human life, as it relates to its religious issues, is not any longer a state of probationary testing. Man is not in a state of probation in this life to see what his destiny is going to be. Man's first probation was in the Garden of Eden, when Adam represented not himself, but the whole race of his descendants. Adam was given a state of probation. But Adam was different than the angels that fell, in that the angels were created individuals, and they do not propagate as human beings. So therefore, each angel fell into sin on his own. But not so with the human race, for the human race is propagated through children. 
and every child of Adam was represented by their father Adam in that first state of probation in Eden. And whatever occurred there was going to settle the destiny as to what would be the character of Adam and all his future descendants. It's not going to be a question of whether that Adam's going to be a sinner or his descendants are going to be a sinner in their nature and character. If Adam falls, he shall inherit a character which is fixed, and all of his descendants shall inherit that same character. The race of man is not now on trial. The case has been called into court. It has been heard by God, and a judgment of sin and guilt and condemnation has been recorded in the record books of heaven, so that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all, as members of Adam's race, infants and adults, are prisoners under a sentence awaiting the day of execution. Now, this is but saying that ours is a fallen race. It's no longer a sinless race. It is a fallen race. It is therefore utterly false to describe the race of men today as their destiny, depending now upon a choice followed by an act, followed by a habit, which produces a character of nature, and then that nature is given a destiny. Beloved, if anybody can believe what happened in the Garden of Eden, that man's probation was settled there. Adam was a probationer, but not as a private person settling his destiny alone for himself. But he was a public head, in some sense representing all of his posterity. So that if he had stood the test, all of his posterity would have inherited a holy life in Adam. But if Adam fails his test, his destiny as to where what his nature shall be, shall be formed by his choice, by his act. His character shall be formed, and that character shall be transmitted to the nature of his children. So his children shall come into this world with a nature which is inherently sinful, and they shall go forth from their mother's womb speaking lies, as we have already seen that the Scripture has emphasized. Now open your Bibles tonight to Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 19. Here we see the representative principle of Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is why that the advocates of this view which we are discussing tonight so adamantly are opposed to what happened in the Garden of Eden, because they deny that Adam was a representative figurehead, that he federally represented the whole race in his choice and in his act. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. In the previous messages we have seen that those who had not sinned after Adam's likeness are referred to here as the infants, and most Bible commentators agree with that principle. Now, an infant does not sin like Adam sinned. Adam was given a clear-cut command. He was personal and conscious of disobeying that command. An infant is not conscious of disobeying a direct command from God. Nevertheless, death affected the infant part of Adam's race as well as the adult part. So in some sense, those infants sinned. And the only way they could have sinned, since they did not sin personally and consciously, is that they sinned in their head, their representative, which was Adam. Now look on, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. That is, here's the similarity. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. That is, as one were made sinners, so a person is saved by a representative. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Here's the representative principle, my people. Through Adam, all men had inherited a sinful character. By Adam's choice, by Adam's act, men's character was formed. And thus the destiny of that character was then determined. For not only was it sinful, but death was pronounced in the garden upon Adam and his descendants. Verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteousness. And verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life, by Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection chapter of the scriptures. And here we have the cause of death and the origin of life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And, beloved, the key to the understanding of that is the representative principle. All who were represented in Adam inherited death. Death was the consequence pronounced upon a sinful character. 
then all of those who are represented in Christ shall inherit life and life everlasting. If you do not understand that text in that light, then it must be understood in one of two ways. Either that because all men sinned in Adam and died, if the all means each and every member of the race in Christ, then every member of the race is going to be given spiritual life. But if you are not a universalist and you do believe that some members of the race are going to perish because of their sin, then you can go back and approach it another way, but here's the way you have to do it. It is held that it is only the probation that was in Adam was conditional. And that while Adam sinned and fell into sin, he represented only himself. And that all of his descendants choose to imitate Adam's choice and his fall into sin. I do not think that I'm speaking to very many here tonight who would take that approach. But that's what you must take if you hold that a person must now imitate the substitutionary death of Christ and put himself into that life by an act of his own choice. If you hold to that, then you must choose that every man falls on his own like Adam did, and then you must hold that every man is saved on his own in Christ. So, beloved, I don't think that there's too many who would want to take that position. I don't think there are any here tonight who would say that when Adam sinned, he didn't represent me or you. But that's the position you must take if you hold that every man is saved, quote, by a choice of his will, which performs an act, which starts a habit, which produces a character, which is then settled upon and a destiny is pronounced upon it. Man's state of probation ended in the first Adam. Now, man was given a second probation state, but it was in the second Adam. Now, listen to me carefully. Jesus Christ came as a representative of the human race, just as Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He is now on test and trial. And if he falls, all those whom he represents fall as well. But, beloved, Jesus Christ was tested in every point like as we, yet without sin. There could be no fault found in him. He was exposed to the wiles of Satan in the wilderness, and yet he stood firm to that test. He was a holy man sent from God. He was the God-man, if you please. But Jesus Christ, having stood his probation, is now seated at the right hand of God. Now, follow me carefully. Jesus Christ did not represent himself in his probationary state. He, like the first Adam, was given a people to represent. And those people stood in his probation, 
not their own. So that there is no question as to what the destiny of Christ shall be. And there is no uncertainty as to what the destiny shall be of all of those who are in Christ and who were represented by Christ. He stood the test where the first Adam failed the test. But just as I did not sin personally and consciously, rather, in the first Adam, but he represented me, so I was not on a conscious probation in the second Adam. In fact, I wasn't even born yet. But whatever my head did for me, the body must receive. And therefore, there is no uncertainty as to what the destiny shall be of all of those who inherit spiritual life which flows from the side of Jesus Christ. It shall be the same destiny which Jesus Christ has partaken of. So I was lost through a representative, and I was saved through a representative. And bless God for that. For having been shown my sinful character, there is no way that I could hope to satisfy the justice of God in his court by any state of probation. Beloved, once you're found guilty of committing one act of sin, that's it. That's it. Your character has been sealed. And as a result, your consequent destiny. Go with me back to the 51st Psalm. Psalm chapter 51. And verse 5, let's see the case of the man known as David. Psalm chapter 51 and verse 5, let us see if David, upon entrance into this world, entered this world as a probationer, or did he enter this world with a character which was sinful? Was there any question as to whether David was going to be a sinner? When he was born, Psalm chapter 51, in verse 5, here is David's own testimony. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Is there any state of probation here in which that David, prior to inheriting a sinful character, must first choose, then act, then start forming a habit, and then that habit would form his character, and then destiny would be pronounced upon that character. Beloved, David possessed a sinful character the moment he was born. That's his own testimony. His own testimony. He was not born in a state of probation to determine whether he would be a sinner or not. He already was born with a nature which was inherently sinful. Inherited from his father Adam. Now then, if you follow that through, then David's destiny was settled if left to his natural character. For the wages of sin is death. 
But just as all hinged upon what happened in Eden, bless God, something else hinged upon David's life. There was another hinge which moved. And that was that David was chosen in Christ Jesus. David was chosen by the electing love of the Father, given to Jesus Christ, so that at a time in his earthly experience, now follow me, grace intercepted nature's natural destiny. David's destiny was based upon his character. His character by birth was sinful. If left to its natural course, David would have perished. And the only thing that changed David's course was the electing grace of God, which intercepted David's nature, and from the mercy and the spiritual life which was in Christ Jesus, that life flowed to David, and David had righteousness imputed and imparted to him, just as he had sin imputed and imparted to him from the first Adam. As in one man, sin into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. But bless God, David had the right man on his side. He had a Savior which intercepted fallen human nature and changed that nature's course of destiny. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So David's life was not a life of probation. Well, let's go to a couple more. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. You say, aha, I knew you was going to get to that sooner or later, Brother Jim. I knew you was going to get there. Well, I don't fear Romans chapter 9. I don't fear that. I have to say this, there was a time which I feared it, because I didn't have any answer for Romans chapter 9. And most ministers today won't touch Romans chapter 9 with a 10, I'll say a 20-foot pole. Here we have the account of two infants born. They're twins, come out of the same womb, same mother. Let us read Romans chapter 9, verse 10, with this thought in mind. Are these infants going to be born with a probationary trial in which they will choose, then act, a habit formed, a character sealed, then a destiny pronounced? Or will they come forth with a certain destiny already sealed? What saith the Scriptures? Romans chapter 9, verse 10. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, beloved, that's in the Scriptures, just as clear as John 3.16 is in the Scriptures. Here are two infants coming forth from the same womb. And before, and this is important, before either 
sinned personally or consciously or done good acts personally and consciously, God's purpose in election had already settled the destinies. Now, someone will reply at this point, if that's what the Bible's teaching, that's unfair. Beloved, I know that's what the Bible's teaching because the Apostle Paul anticipates that very question to be asked. Look in verse, the very next verse, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. <laughs> that's unfair. Now, if that's not what is being taught in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, that here were two whose destinies were already settled, then why does Paul anticipate any question to ever come up? If that's not what Paul's teaching, he wouldn't have to anticipate a question and then have to answer the question. But there must be an answer adequately given and Christian theology has that answer. What is the answer? You say, Brother Jim, it is unfair for the destiny of a person who has never committed a personal act of sin, for that person to be condemned before they ever have a state of probation to act. All right? That might be true. Except you are overlooking one major premise of Christian theology, and that is the representative principle. The representative principle. What do you mean, Brother Jim? Jacob and Esau had neither personally nor consciously done good or evil, but they were viewed in their heads, Adam and the second Adam. They were both viewed as sinners in Adam, the representative principle. And Jacob was given by the Father to the Son in electing grace that his nature might be changed in the second Adam. No personal acts, good or evil, but in Adam they were viewed as sinners and inherited the wrath of God. Jacob, in Christ, was given to Christ to represent, and therefore he was redeemed and had his nature changed. A person came up to me one night and said, I just don't understand that. I don't understand how God could uh, love Jacob and hate Esau. I said, what do you mean? He said, I just don't understand how this God of love could hate Esau. I said, ma'am, that's not my problem. My problem is, is how this holy God could love a sinner like Jacob. That's the problem. That's the problem. How could God love a sinful rebel? And he did that in the representative principle. In Jesus Christ, my Lord. My friend, God cannot love me outside of Christ. Now, you get that down. I was a sinful rebel. The only love that I could ever share in the love of God, which passeth understanding, is first the love that God had for his son, Jesus Christ, and I was loved in Christ. The representative principle 
of Christian theology answers the question, it is not unfair. It is not unfair. Because God does not have mercy on all, he's not obligated to. He can leave an Esau to his own sinful choice, his own nature, his own habits, and pronounce a destiny upon that. For every child, if left to their own nature, which they inherit by birth, shall grow up to become a sinful adult. There's no question about what their destiny is going to be if you just leave them alone. They're going to be sealed into a character which is sinful. And that character was inherited in the first Adam. Now then, secondly, not only is human life not a state of probationary testing, but that, secondly, all sin does not consist in a personal act alone. Now, listen carefully. You can have a sinful state of being as well as a sinful act. You can have a sinful nature without committing yet a sinful act. You remember I said at the outset of this series of messages that our purpose was not only to deal with the salvation of an infant, but to also to clarify more clearly the Christian way of salvation. And here, as we go, as we make our progress through this, I hope that we can begin to see that human character is not caused by an act. Human character manifests itself in actions. I did not act and then become a sinner. I was a sinner and I chose to act in a sinful fashion. It was not an act of my will that influenced my and formed my character. I came forth with a character, a state of being, which issued forth in sinful actions. So that we can say that all sin does not consist in just personal actions. I may be here this evening, and while I have never run a knife into the body of any member of my race. I may have anger in the heart. I may have a sinful nature behind that, which would desire to see my brother angered. I may have been faithful to my wife and never participated in adultery, but that does not mean that I am not an adulterer. In the eyes of God. Jesus taught this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. If a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he's guilty of the act. So that not everything which has to take place in an act, that's not where sin is primarily found. Sin is found in the state of being. And then people act out of that state of being. Jesus taught this when he startled the religious leader of his day named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, when he said that a man must first be something before he can act something. John chapter 3 and verses 3 through 5. Look at it. 
And this, I hope, if you'll note carefully with this principle of philosophy of the human will and human nature, which is very sound and is recognized in, in uh, philosophy courses. In verse 3 of John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, beloved, what has to take place first? Is it man's action which produces his character, or is it a change of man's character which influences actions? A man must be born before he can act. He must be born again before he can enter, before he can even see. Actions are a manifestation of the character, not vice versa. And all modern religion inverts this thing and says that due to the fact that man is in a probationary state, his acts are forming his character. Jesus came upon the religious scene and said the very opposite. Nicodemus, a man's nature must be altered before he can even see to enter the kingdom of heaven. Before he can act, his nature must be altered. That was a revolutionary thing to Nicodemus. And Jesus said, are you a ruler of the Jews and you don't understand that? Are you a master of theology? You've got your master's degree. You've got your DD's degree. And yet you don't understand that the basic premise of human nature and will is that a man's nature will influence his actions. Not vice versa. Jesus also taught this in Matthew chapter 12 with the good tree and the corrupt tree. Turn there to Matthew chapter 12. Here in the account of the two trees, verse 33, he said, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? Now get your order. For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Now what's influencing what? The nature's influencing the actions, not the actions influencing the person's nature. Look on. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart, out of his nature, bringeth forth good things, good acts. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. That's why Jesus would also say it's not that what enters into man that defiles him. It's that which comes out of a man that defiles him. So before the good man can speak good things, he must have a good nature. A good tree brings forth good fruit. Now, fruit is but revealing the nature of the tree. The fruit doesn't create the nature of the tree. It reveals what kind of a tree it is. Let's apply it to our subject this evening. Make the baby good, and the adult will be good. Make the baby bad, and the adult will be bad. 
You have all babies born with a sinful nature. If left to their nature, you're going to have a whole crop of sinful adults. That's certain. Unless God reaches down in electing grace and changes the nature and creates a new creature, and that's exactly what a Christian's called. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. If God does not intercept that human nature, its destiny will be such as its character is. And its character is sealed in sin. Oh, the mercy of God that he chose to intercept some fallen sinners out of Adam's race. Do you rejoice in that tonight? Or do you fear? If that fear is there, it can only be due to one of two, uh, to this thought. Maybe I'm not in Christ. Maybe I'm not in Christ. My friend, if you're not in Christ tonight, you need to take some time and study meditation, prayer, and thought to find out what the manifestation of being in Christ is. The Scripture says to give diligence to make your calling and your election sure. What is the manifestation of God electing to choose a human's nature and not to leave it to themselves? In an adult, it is repentance and faith and evangelical obedience to the will of God. In an infant which cannot manifest that, the proof of an infant's election is in its very death, as we will show in future messages to come. Are you chosen of God in Christ? How can I know that, Brother Jim? Have you manifested a genuine godly sorrow? over your sinful rebellion against God. Have you placed saving faith in Christ? You say, yes, I have. Then let me inform you here on this. That did not create your new nature. That was a manifestation of your new nature. Repentance and faith are acts which reveal spiritual life. They are not acts which create spiritual nature. If you say that, you're right back in the old category of the Pelagian, who says that man is in a state of probation. By an act, he forms his habits, and by his habits, he forms his character, and his character determines his destiny. Have you repented and believed in Christ tonight? You say, Brother Jim, I have reason to feel that I have. Then that's revealing the work of God having changed your sinful nature. It's not that which saved you. It's not that which created your spiritual life. It's that which manifested the spiritual life that God intercepted. Your fallen, sinful nature turned it around, and now it seeks and hungers out after the things of God. Now, there are biblical references throughout the Scriptures affirming that there are sinful states of being as well as sinful acts of being. I'll just give a few of these. You don't have to turn to them. The Scriptures speak in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, of evil thoughts as well as evil acts. 
The Scriptures speak in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, of an evil heart, of which anger is equal to the act of murder. Of a lust which is adultery, Matthew 5, verse 28. Of a lustful nature which conceives and brings forth sin, James 1, 15. Of a sin that works all manner of coveting, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. Of a sinfulness which slumbered until the law came, in Romans chapter 7, verse 10. And of a sin which reigns in our mortal bodies, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. So that all of these indicate that man can have a sinful state of being before he ever commits his first sinful act of disobedience. Now, beloved, if that's true, then that just blows out of the water the incapable theory. God can condemn a sinful nature as well as a sinful act. And if the child is born with a sinful nature, then it needs a Savior. It needs a Savior. If you took that little child to heaven without changing its nature, and incidentally, death doesn't change it. Death, there's nothing purifying in the grave. If you took that little child, which the Scripture says is born with a sinful nature, you took it to heaven and you let it mature and grow and develop, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be a sinner in heaven, and then there you've got heaven defiled. God's got to do something with it. You say, well, he can't condemn it because it is not accountable. That may be true, but neither can he take it to heaven with that sinful nature. He's got to do something with it. He's got to do something with it. What would you do with it? You can't send it to hell under this theory, and you can't take it to heaven under this theory. What are you going to do with it? Throw it in a ditch somewhere? Hmm? Say that's the end of it? I'm sure glad that we have a greater hope in the gospel for the salvation of infants, aren't you? That we have a Savior who took those little infants in his arm when he left heaven's glory. When he was born in the, from the womb of the virgin, he was representing those sinful infants. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty, not only for any actions which they may do, but for their very sinful nature, wherein they are rendered justified before God, passed from condemnation to life, and blessed God prior to their death. He sends forth the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, changing that sinful nature, because flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. A man must be born again. Those little infants have a Savior. He's named the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in summation of this view, the Pelagian reasoning that since an infant is incapable of performing personal and conscious probationary acts, that it is thus a savable object is false for these three reasons. Number one, this view is false because it does not allow for the consideration that the infant can be condemned on the ground of possessing a sinful nature or heart. We would agree with the advocates of this theory that the infant has never committed a personal act of conscious sin against God. 
But this theory overlooks that there's a possibility that the infant has a sinful state of being, nature, prior to its ever committing a sinful act. And therefore, because infants die, it is proof that God can be just in exposing infants to the sin of Adam. The second reason why this incapable theory must not be accepted is this. It does not recognize that man's probationary period to determine his character and hence his destiny ended when Adam fell. And it places every member of the race on their own state of probation. Now, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is that what you want? Do you want to be saved by a representative, or do you want to stand on your own in your own state of probation? I know what my destiny would be if I was left to my going through that choice, act, habit, character, and destiny. I know what my destiny would be. For I am already a sinner. I can't turn it around. But bless God, Jesus can. He can turn it around. So that I have hope tonight in the gospel, a substitute, and not my own probationary faithfulness or unfaithfulness. The third reason why this view must be held as false is this. Now listen carefully. If all human life is probationary, and all destiny is determined by this path, sow a choice, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. If that is what probation is, now listen, since the infant is incapable of meeting these probationary conditions, the infant can have no destiny of any sort, because it cannot travel either way. Elaborate, Pastor Gables. There are only two ways that end out of this probationary theory. The way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. If heaven is attainable by one kind of walking and hell is entered by another kind of walking, are you with me? The infant cannot walk. And therefore, it cannot go anywhere. It has no destiny of any sort. If it is put on a probationary state and it dies before, it can go into that probationary condition. Now, is that what you want me to tell a father and mother at the grave of their child? Well, I'm sorry, but... All I can tell you is that your infant, it didn't go to hell because it, it never sinned. But I can't tell you that your infant went to heaven because it never had time to walk the way to heaven. Is that what you would have me tell them? My friend, I can tell them that your hope as a mother and dad 
is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that all other grounds of infant salvation are sinking sand when you try to ground the salvation of a dead child outside of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. There is a hope in the gospel. But run it by you one more time. If that infant's on probation, and it must first reach an age of accountability where it must choose to act, then it actions perform a habit, and habit produce a character, then the character seals to destiny. If that infant cannot live to that probationary beginning, it cannot go to heaven or hell. It has no destiny of any sort. And therefore, it's just like the dog. When it dies, you've got to send it back to the dust of the earth. God can't assign it a destiny of any sort. Is there comfort there? No, there's no comfort there. I remember walking out of the engineering lab in Los Angeles, California, when God called me into the ministry. I remember an engineer there looking at me saying, Oh, don't take this thing seriously. When you die, you'll die just like a dog. Is that what I'm to tell a Christian mother and father? Or for anyone, for that matter, who is looking for some understanding of what happens to a child when it dies? Am I to tell them, well, since that child did not have time to go through a, a probationary period to enable it to choose whether it wanted to walk toward heaven or to walk toward hell, since it did not have that opportunity, it has no destiny of any type. Oh, I'm glad there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinful infants plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That the wind can blow where it wills to blow and that prior to the death of that infant, that child, that idiot, that one who has no mental consciousness, God can reach down and spiritual life can flow from the side of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father into the life of that sinful individual, intercepting their sinful nature, making them a new creature in Christ Jesus and fit to inhabit the shores of heaven. Justified by the blood of Christ, sanctified by the spirit of regeneration. There's hope. For the salvation of children, but it's not in their sinlessness, and it is not in their incapability. Let us look elsewhere. The Lord willing, next week, we'll examine the last part of this argument.